Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian-developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens with another episode of the podcast where people talk to me about the five things from their life that they'd like to preserve. No, not in aspic, but in a time capsule. They pick four things they cherish and one they rather regret and would like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. And then we talk about them. My guest doing that this week is the writer, journalist, podcaster and comedian Andrew Hunter-Murray one of the team of QILs that gives us the wonderful podcast No Such Thing as a Fish, alongside its co-presenters Anna Tuzinski, James Harkin and Dan Schreiber, two of whom have been previous guests on my time capsule. All we need now is James and we've got the set. Yes! Andrew works for QI, he's a journalist for Private Eye, he hosts the podcast Page 94, he appears regularly on the satirical comedy show The Mash Report, and he's a member of the Jane Austen-themed improvisational comedy troupe Ostentatious. So, let's find out what Andrew Hunter-Murray would like to put in his time capsule. So, Andy, what's your first item? My first item is the cheapest possible fountain pen made by Parker. And (laughs) I've got a very specific fountain pen in mind. They're readily available. They cost about a tenner. Mm. And if I can can have a little bolt onto it, I'd like a a small uh, moleskin notebook to go with it, please. But that really is pretty superfluous. The main thing is the Parker, the very cheap Parker pen. What draws you to Parker pens then? Uh, it's the price. It's the economy uh, of having <laughs> an extra. It basically combines the two main elements of me, which is wanting to do things properly mm. and classily, but also for the minimum possible expenditure. And yes. so this pen has kind of followed me throughout my life. Um, I've always had one of them on the go since I was at school and you mm. know, we've been taught proper handwriting and I've consistently lost these pens and broken them. They're not actually great pens. They frequently split and they you can't screw them in properly. So <laughs> they start coming undone, you get ink all over your fingers. But they are economical, I will say that much. And um, I've always had one of these pens on the go and I've had this constant struggle between wanting to make my writing look 
nice mm. and the fact that I don't want to spend lots of money on a nice fountain pen, which is what I should have done. If I'd done that 15 years ago, I'd still be writing with it. I'm sure I'd have taken really good care of it. Yes, you'd have that one pen for life. I know, I know. And lots of people have some, you know, nice pen that they use on special occasions. But I just I just go through them like crazy. And I'm always a pen down. That's funny because most people stop using a Parker pen or use a, yeah. a fountain pen when they leave school. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the third element of my personality that I think is important is uh, arrested development at an early <laughs> stage. Um, I notice you're still wearing your school uniform. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> the cap's not too much, is it? No, no, no. It's, it's charming. Uh, yeah. So it's strange because I, I spend a lot of my time writing and... Um, there is an old joke, the thing of if you are in a group of people, one of whom is a writer or a journalist, and you want to know which one is the writer or journalist, you ask who's got a pen. Mm. And the one who doesn't have the pen is the writer. That's <laughs> yes. always the way. <laughs> always. Um, so when you were at school, mm. were you terribly studious and uh, and well-behaved? Yeah, it's. Oh, I really was. It's mm. it's very depressing. In fact, someone recently has created a Wikipedia page for me for the first time ever, which I've never had. And I'd like to say I didn't solicit it. I didn't pay a PR company to write one for me. And it's only about six lines long. And one of the few lines is that Murray has said that when he was at school, he was sickeningly studious. And that's, I mean, it's not one of the top six things I'd pick about myself for no. any kind of posterity. But yeah, I was I was very focused on working hard and always very stressed about exams and uh yeah, that was that was a big <laughs> element of my life growing up. Too big, I'd say, with hindsight. But there we go. Did that pressure come from your parents? No, not at all. I think no. I think they'd have been perfectly happy with a a, a slightly better adjusted child. <laughs> but, you know, what what can you do? Um <laughs> they they played the hand they were dealt. Um <laughs> I've no idea where it came from. Yeah. I mean, I'd always been an obsessive reader and, you know, really I only got into writing so that I could do more reading. Your own. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, God, that makes it sound like I got into writing so I could just read my own stuff, which makes me sound like a <laughs> real narcissist. No, it's eventually, I think, you know, if you're an obsessive reader, you read so much that you think, well, you're, you've kind of filled up, you're filled to the brim with all the reading you've done and eventually it just starts coming out as writing. Possibly. Mm. But I think the, the, there's a really interesting relationship between people who are readers and people who are writers. Because the best, I mean, writers all read a lot, I think. Yes. Um, it'd be pretty weird to find a writer who wasn't a, a very, very keen reader. Mm. Um, yeah, that's probably also where the pen thing comes from. Is, um, it's an item with a lot of nostalgia, but as I've said, very low, uh, very low till value. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> at least if it goes into the time capsule, I'll, I'll know that there is a pen somewhere that I can get my hands on. So are you common then amongst writers, do you think, that you actually still write with a pen? God, I thought you were going to ask if I was common. Just, just I thought you were going to come around and say, so are you common, would you are say? Are you very common? Uh, yeah. I don't talk to common people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether um, lots of writers use a, still use a pen or not. I have a phase I go through where I'm writing in notebooks in cafes in the morning. That's and... the moleskin notebook then? Exactly, yeah. And there's a really fun website called Coffitivity, which replicates the sound of a cafe for you. You just open <laughs> it up in your browser, and it just has this slight hum of conversation and chat. And occasionally you can hear a couple of glasses clinking together and some chinaware. And it's it's really blissful. I don't know whether I've been conditioned to love the sound of a cafe or whether there's something about that low-level background noise of mm. human activity, but where you can't quite discern the conversation. No, nobody's interrupting you, but they're there. 
Exactly, yeah. And in fact, that's a much better experience than I normally have uh, in a cafe because I'm a real fiend in cafes. I mean, people go there to have a nice time and chat. At whatever volume they like, they're allowed to. And yet, we're kind of magnetically drawn to each other, the people in the cafe who love to talk very, very loudly, and me. <laughs> we, d- we don't know why, but we're symbiotically parasitic on each other. So mm. I will sit down and they will join me, or I will sit by them just before they start talking about the stuff. I mean, it... Anyway, we end up next to each other and we end up with me kind of scowling at them. Does that happen on trains and everywhere you go? It, ha- it happens everywhere I go. It's, do you remember the, <laughs> there's a Douglas Adams character who's the rain god and um, clouds love him and they want to be near him. He doesn't know it. He's a truck driver and he just it's raining everywhere and at all times. Anywhere he is, it's raining. And I think I'm like that, but with inappropriately loud conversation, possibly. <laughs> I think it might just be me. Words like to be spoken at high volume near me. Um, So So I have one more question about the pen. Okay. I I know what a Parker pen looks like. Uh, I would imagine silver cap, maybe with a blue or a black body. It's actually all plastic, the one I've got in mind. All plastic. Very, very (laughs) cheap then. It's truly the schoolchild's pen, yeah. And a cartridge pen, not where you draw the ink in. That's right. Yeah, cartridge. Okay. Wait, are you thinking of inkwell? I'm thinking of inkwells and and the quink bottle. Yeah, it's actually the cartridges I have are quink, but I I didn't know that quink used to do inkwells. Oh, now we're really getting into the weeds of pen related (laughs) arcana. I love it. Ah, right. So, yeah, so when I was at school, we all had a a bottle of ink and you would have to pull a little handle on the side of the Parker pen and that would draw the ink in into the well inside. There's a handle on the side of the pen. Yes, a little handle on the side of the pen. And as you pulled it, it depressed the sack inside that held the ink. Oh, my God. Therefore, creating a vacuum so that when you put it in the ink and you released yeah. it, it drew ink back into the pen. I love that. Mm. I think I don't know if that was still widely on sale when I was at school. I doubt it. I really like things like that, things which have uh, an extra mechanical level to go through. before. I mean, there's, there's something very pleasing about that, and it's something which I think gives you a bit of space and time. So actually, there is an equivalent in the cartridges they have these days, the ink cartridges. Mm. You've got the normal ink cartridge, which is about five-sixths of the length. And then, this is so dull, but I've I've, I've got the mic, so I'm going to go for it. But then you get to the end, you know, the ink does that thing where it slowly runs out. It's getting Mm -hmm. thinner and thinner, and you think, oh, I'll just get to the end of this page. I can do it. And then it completely runs out. And then you unscrew the main body of the pen, and right at the end of the cartridge, there is this little reserve sack, which if you hammer on the end of the cartridge a few times, it kind of releases it and suddenly you have another page's worth of writing to do it's incredibly (laughs) satisfying and i always incredibly satisfying but i have to say completely pointless yeah (laughs) Yeah. why don't they just make a bigger cartridge absolutely absolutely (laughs) oh that's brilliant okay well we're gonna take your lovely parker pen then great well i say lovely parker pen i'm afraid it is going to be the 10 pound version yeah (laughs) absolute wh smith cheap version Mm -hmm. and that's going into the time capsule there we are an aspiring writer will find it one day and think yes now (laughs) i can if only i had a moleskin notebook (laughs) marvelous that's your first item andy so what's your second item uh the second item is this is slightly embarrassing because i'm i would say i'm retreading ground that you've already covered very brilliantly on this podcast because in one of the very Mm -hmm. early episodes you had anna tajinsky on and she spoke about her bike. Yes. And I'm not going to donate Anna's bike because that would be willfully eccentric, but I am going to donate 
mine, which is a it's a green and black Trek seven point one, and we've had so many good times together that I I can't leave it out. Anna has had a, a much more exciting and adventurous set of collisions on her bike than I have on mine. I haven't had a bad crash for ages now. So you sound disappointed. Well, it's no, you're right. I do. Hmm, what's going on there? I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but one of the one of the things I've been doing in lockdown is cycling all over London, mm. and because I learned to drive very late, and I never quite saw the point of it. I've been cycling everywhere for a, a long time, and mm. have even done a couple of long trips across. You know, we did London to Paris, my buddies and I, and we we once did the Alps, which was the crowning achievement of my cycling life, and wow. it all happened on this pretty heavy bike yes <laughs> again we're coming up against my thrift here because i should have bought a road bike or something something mm. you know swift and and incredibly lightweight and i have this huge affection for the bike i have which is quite clunky and you wouldn't pick it if you were setting out on a on a bike road adventure but is it five gear um i think it's 21 gear 21 <laughs> yeah that shows how long it is since i've, I've ridden a bicycle <laughs> <laughs> that bicycles have 21 gears. I think so. It's got a ring, a ring of seven and then a thing of three at the front, so you can, yeah. 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 I thought they were advancing when they went from three gears to five. I thought five, <laughs> you couldn't want more than that. Who could want more than five? It's like the Gillette uh, razor blades thing. Yes. You know, <laughs> I bet you're on a, I bet you're on a two max, two blades. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm ashamed to say three. Oh, no, I mean, that's, that's, that's fine. You've, you know. Is it? Yeah, you've gone for some comfort. It's just showing off, isn't it? My, I know. <laughs> my dad only uses the very, very basic Gillette two-blade razors. And I mm. recently, I shifted from a two to a five. And honestly, it's it's you can't go back. You can't go back to the incredibly painful, scratchy sensation of a, a two-blade rusty razor after you've, after you've gone up. <laughs> no. So, yeah. So, like the gears on your bikes, you like plenty of them. I know. Degraded youth, you know? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's all to do with numbers with you, isn't it? <laughs> Give me more, more, more. <laughs> well, it is, it's, I mean, with cycling, cyclists are obsessed with numbers. And um, I think part of the thing I like about it is it's a way of spending time with close friends when you're mm. cycling. Because I, I have a buddy or two I cycle with regularly. And it's a very good way of being with a friend where you actually don't have to talk to them if neither of you is minded to it, you can be 100 metres apart or you can be right next to each other on some really fiendish hills and you can be either talking really closely, you can be talking about important things, but it's that funny thing about, I think this is not unfair to say, this funny thing about male friendship mm. where it's quite useful not to have to make eye contact while the friendship is happening. <laughs> Very important. <laughs> and with cycling, you know, that's um, really facilitates that. So yeah. Um, yeah. So that cycling around London then during lockdown, well, that's a once-in-a-lifetime experience, isn't it? Yeah, it has been. To go around somewhere where it's so quiet. Yeah, it's been wonderful. There's something about the quietness, which is you just feel like the world is a little bit your own when you're cycling around in, on these kind of traffic-free roads. Mm. There's a wonderful way of seeing things when you're cycling, kind of like when you're walking. The, the, the body in motion means that you see things with more clarity and attention almost. Mm. I think this happens on the bike too, because you're moving fast enough to see everything. You're not you're not really missing because you're not going at 40 miles an hour or whatever, but you're still moving forwards with purpose all the time. So the landscape rolls past like this fabulous canvas on either side of you. 
Yeah. And uh, there's something about the combination of the effort it takes, but with this beautiful view happening at all times. I've always yeah. found the advantage of riding a bicycle, and I, I, I'm going to admit that occasionally I have ridden a bicycle. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I know. But what I like about it is that suddenly you're two feet higher up than you would be, and therefore you can see into people's gardens. It- <laughs> Wow, Mike, this is a that's an unexpectedly voyeuristic use of the bicycle that I wouldn't have I wouldn't have expected from you. You should get a penny farthing because then you can see into their bedrooms. And I imagine that's where the really exciting stuff is happening. Yep. <laughs> Make note to self. Get penny farthing. Okay, right. Yes. I'm sorry, I just wrote that in my moleskin notebook. That's it. <laughs> yeah, that 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 is a that is a point which I hadn't considered. When people build a fence, the first thing I want to do is to look over it. Interesting. Interesting. We're mm. learning about you a lot too, I think I would say. Right. It's all yeah. wrong reversal going on here, wasn't it? <laughs> and how long have you had these strong urges uh, to <laughs> purvey? Ever since I found that I wasn't going to grow taller than five foot eight. <laughs> well, yes, all right. So um, I love the idea of putting a bicycle into the time capsule. Oh, it's a brilliant invention. That's exactly, I feel this huge, this sounds so Swedish, but... I feel very glad that I wasn't born before the bicycle was invented because, um, as Anna said in her brilliant episode, it did change society quite a lot. I mean, you know, the first roads were made more smooth, not for cars, but for bikes. That was a much bigger driver of of roads being properly paved. And that means you can travel further. It means you can travel further for work or to meet the person you're going to marry or whatever it might be. So, Mm. and there's a sense when, when you're on a long ride, this is a, Strange thing, but I, I get a sense of it's like a Madeline moment, you know, the the Proustian memory thing. Every long bike ride I go on feels like it's connected to every other long bike ride I've gone on. There's a sense in which you're in one particular mode of living when you are traveling on the bike. And when I'm cycling, memories of other bike rides come back to me mm. much more readily than when I'm off the bike. And I'll think, ah, this is just like that hill that we did two years ago when we were doing that horrible event and they, they diverted us and we had to go up past that pillbox and it was a nightmare to do but or you remember oh this is like coming down off that gorgeous mountain pass that we were in here and so that's very nice you're kind of yes. accessing lots of other bits of your life but all with that one same pattern running through but that does sound a bit like cycling to paris because i've driven to paris it's a long way but it just goes up and down and up <laughs> and down endlessly yeah well, that's the other thing cycling is pain if you're <laughs> if you're doing a really long hill i've never done a really long bike ride and not at least once thought this is it i'm done with cycling i don't ever want to get back on this bike <laughs> and when you do if you've ever tried to do london to brighton it's a gorgeous ride but you do about 50 miles and then suddenly there's the south downs in front of you this hill called ditchling beacon yeah which is a horror it's horrible it's so unpleasant. And it's just before you get to the good ending bit to go downhill. So it's at the worst possible point. How often have you done that then? Oh, only, um, I'd say three or four times, London to Brighton. On that day that people cycle to Brighton? No, right? I've never done that. I'd be terrified to I'd crash into someone because it's, so, <laughs> it's so busy with so many bikes. It's a really good thing, but um, I quite like cycling as a, as a lone activity. I've mm. done the occasional, they do these events, but there, there are always people there who are a bit good. They're a bit professional. Yeah. You know, they've got the proper socks. Legs have been shaved <laughs> in preparation. You think, this isn't me. I'm staying am. No, 
I mean, look at your bike. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and that's why I there. keep it as well. I keep it partly as a shield against being accused of not being very good. I said, wow, how could I be great with a bike like this? But also that sense of the amateurish I, mm. I love. Well, uh, for the very sake that there, when I was a boy, there was nothing nicer. The whole summer was spent rushing out of the house at eight o'clock in the morning and jumping on a bicycle and then going really? off and joining other people on bicycles and cycling miles and miles and miles. Where were you? Which I was in Orpington, which is sort of on the edge of Kent, but it's right on the Green Belt. So immediately next to where I lived was the Green Belt. So you were in almost pre-war style country lanes. And they were so narrow that there were hardly any cars on them. So as a boy, you know, we would just cycle and then get off and pick apples. And it was a very idyllic thing to do right through the summer. Mike, you won't believe this. I was in Orpington yesterday. No. Yeah. <laughs> we did the whole area. We did Petswood and we did Chislehurst and we did Orpington yeah. and we yeah. I think it's a traditional route to go from London. It's one of those, let's head out towards Chelsfield. Yeah. How strange. There we are. You covered <laughs> the same ground as I did when I was yes. a boy. Yes. Again, the Madeline moment. <laughs> it's all connected. Yeah. It's lovely. Well, all right, then. I'll put your bicycle and... Uh, maybe buy myself a bicycle <laughs> and they go into the time capsule so that's lovely that's two items we've got three left two more that you love and one that you loathe right we're going to take a short break from this podcast for the thing that pays for it the adverts we hope we'll be back in a moment one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back. Let's get straight back to my chat with Andrew Hunter-Murray and find out what else he wants to put in the time capsule. Okay, so number three mm -hmm. is uh, a bit bigger than either a bike or a fountain pen. It's a pub, a particular pub in Edinburgh. It's called The Halfway House. You might know it. Yes, I do know it, yes. Yeah. So as you mm. come out of Edinburgh Waverley Station mm -hmm. and you're heading into the old town, there's this narrow staircase and it's it's dingy and it's not been i'd say well loved by the people who've gone up and down it it's <laughs> no. been pretty maltreated one or two wet patches oh yeah. yeah goodness me it really reeks but there is this pub halfway up it called the halfway house um there are a few pubs actually they've managed to squeeze onto what is effectively a staircase <laughs> you know as the scottish way and it's a pub where i Go, if I'm in Edinburgh, I try and get there every time I'm there at least once because they serve a very, very nice haggis and neeps and tatties. Uh, and my father's Scottish, so I have haggis 
quite a lot. It's unbelievably good. It's scalding hot because I think it's just been in the microwave for about twenty minutes. But with it's, a pint, uh, yeah, with a pint, or even if I'm, I'm if I'm going full tourist, I'll have a whiskey. Yes, it's a lovely pub. I, I do know it. Ah, great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, because you either make the choice when you come out of the station if you're heading to the old town of walking slowly up the winding roads or going yeah. up those precipitous staircases. Yeah. And if you've got a lot of luggage with you, you really regret it halfway up, don't yeah. you? And that's <laughs> when you think, if only there were a pub. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's a lovely place. And it's everyone who goes to the Fringe regularly has a few little places that they like, which are not very fringy places. Yes. So this um, Scottish heritage then, your father's Scottish. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So is it the Murray? In your name. Exactly. Is, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Ah, there's a tartan. There's everything. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I feel it's a bit of a cheat because I've been brought up in London, you know, my whole life. And when I, even when I'm visiting, it's for the Fringe Festival. So, yeah. you know, I'm seeing Edinburgh at its, its least Scottish by per head of population, I mm-hmm. think. And I am one of the people who the vast majority of Edinburgh's locals are rightly irritated by. Particularly taxi drivers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The cabbies in Edinburgh are so often surprised to have someone fringe-related in their cab during the month of August. I don't know why. (laughs) Oh, you're here for the fringe. Uh, Tim Vine posted a brilliant Twitter thing yesterday, which was a photograph of the poster that he put up in Edinburgh. Yes. He put up a huge poster of himself with the words Tim Vine in great letters and then very small lettering at the bottom, is not appearing at the festival this year. Yes. Just brilliant. I remember that as my first Fringe, that one. I think it was 2006, was it? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and I was staying on the other side of the Brunsfield Links, uh, mm. the little golf course they have there, and I was, yeah, it, it's completely intoxicating as a as a thing. And it's not happening this year. I mean, this would have been day one, more or less, as we're recording yes. this now. Um, yeah, quite. It feels terrible. I feel so sad. All these young comedians who are not having a chance to go and lose seven or eight thousand pounds of their own hard-earned money. That, <laughs> you know, a lot of people have to find other ways to ruin themselves financially, uh, and I don't know, don't know what they're going to do. I know. Do you think now there are taxi drivers driving around <laughs> Edinburgh saying, "Where the hell is everybody?" Yeah, I read it. I did read a news report the other day that the one year the Fringe is not happening since what is it, nineteen forty-nine. Most of the people in Edinburgh have gone on holiday. Right? I mean, because everyone's been locked down for so long, people naturally want to get away and have a, mm. have a bit of a break. But you would think this is the one time in probably for the next century that we're going to have a tourist-free Edinburgh in the month of August. It's such a gorgeous city that I would, you know... Mm. It's funny because I've always had my birthday there too because my birthday's in the month of August. So it's oh. been a place where from, I think, about 10 birthdays in a row I had at the Fringe... And it's a wonderful place to have a birthday. Yeah. It's also terrible because no one is free because everyone's going to six different shows. And you say, look, I'd just like to organise a party where people can stand around and talk about me for a bit. And people (laughs) naturally are not free. So, you know. (laughs) Well, it's an excuse to have lots of parties. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone you bump into, you just, you know, casually let it slip. (laughs) (laughs) How many times have you done Ostentatious up there? Uh, I think seven or eight. Because it's become huge now, hasn't it? I mean, it's one of the biggest shows the well, festival, a, I think. It's a proper thing now, yeah. And we've we're all getting so busy with doing ostentatious that it's we're now doing ten days or we're doing a week instead of, you know, the full thing. Mm. But the first the first year we did it, we were doing the free festival. And that's where you just get a room above a pub. You don't sell any tickets and you just hope people turn up. Yes. And the pub likes it because people turn up and buy a drink and you like it because you're not 
you know, you're not spending those thousands of pounds on a, a proper venue. No. And we didn't know if it would go well. And then people started coming along and they started queuing. And then the queues got bigger and bigger. And we gradually realized over the month that the people, you know, really dug it. And we were cramming them into this room above a pub. And it Fantastic. Was, it felt like the properly fringy experience to have. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. And it, it's spawned, well, so many imitations, really, hasn't it, in different styles. The fringe is full of shows where people are improvising on a theme, as it were. Oh, yes. And, I mean, I should say we did not invent um, genre improv at all. You know, we, no. we saw some brilliant um, shows, a lot of us, when we were over in the USA. And we saw, actually saw Alexander Hamilton-themed improv in <laughs> 2008. <laughs> Eight in the USA, and we thought, God, who would do a show about Alexander Hamilton? And it was, it was honestly the greatest hour of comedy I've ever seen. Is these two guys playing Hamilton and Burr, who you know, spoiler alert, mm-hmm. they had the duel, and, and Burr kills Hamilton. And, oh no, I haven't seen it. Oh God, oh. <laughs> ruined. Um, but they would take a take a random suggestion at the start for anything that might happen in colonial era uh, USA, mm. and. All that you knew was that the show would end with them having a duel and Burr killing Hamilton. That was all. That was the only fixed point was the ending, which is lovely. And they would some these two guys were geniuses. They would sometimes do fifty five minutes of breathtakingly funny stuff, and then remember they had to crowbar in a, an enmity and duel, and they would just, <laughs> just do that. Suddenly get angry with each other. <laughs> I know. In the last five minutes, it was. It was so good, and I'm so sad that other people won't see it because of this uh, this Lin Manuel Miranda guy, whoever he may be. Mm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that was anyway. That that was you know an, something that inspired us with the the genre. Yeah, yeah. Improvising. And, I mean, well, you know, improv is, but it's an extraordinary skill. I have to say that thing of, I mean, I know you tend to get better at it the more you do it, but allowing your brain to be so relaxed and free that actually just letting the moment take you. Is a very brave thing, I think. I've tried it. Have you? I've done improv. I've done improv with the comedy store players. Oh, well, that's that's big leagues. Yeah, and they were, but I was so lost. They were so fast. It can be very terrifying. And I think, mm. I mean, certainly when I started doing it, I found it completely terrifying. But we we're very lucky. We did it at university, you know, we weren't going on, you know, starting at the comedy store. So it was, no. it, we were very lucky to have that kind of dojo to do our training in. And um, yes. it was so much fun. I think I'm still chasing the terror of the, I remember stepping out in front of the audience for the first time, first scene, first game of the night in my first show. And just thinking there are a hundred people in this room looking at me and I don't know what is going to be said. I don't know any lines. <laughs> it's, I, I can, I can, even, I can feel now the goosebumps and the chill mm-hmm. and the thrill mm-hmm. of knowing that was about to happen. And the show happened and it was so much fun. But more than the fun, there was the that feeling of wonderful addictive terror of knowing yes. that you don't know what's about to happen. I think that's the real joy. Yeah. That's got to be the way you look at it because if you think actually it's just terror, <laughs> it's got to be addictive, isn't it? It's got to be a sense of I know this is frightening, but that's the fun of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we had such amazing supportive improv teachers. That's the other thing. It is a it is a skill. It can be learned, you know. Mm-hmm. And they the teachers tell you, don't try to be funny. We're going to try and do a good scene or play this game well. The funny will happen, but you don't need to look straight for that. Well, that's exactly what I was told when I turned up at the comedy store at the last minute because somebody had dropped out. Mm. I got a phone call saying, do you want to come and do it tonight? And I said, okay. 
<laughs> and then I turned up and I said, what do we do? And they said, oh, we just, you'll follow it. It's easy. We just play some games. I said, okay. Um, I've never seen this before. I don't know what you're about oh. to do. So what do we do? And they said, well, look, it's very simple. Um, don't try to be funny and don't block. And that was it. That's all I was told. And then we walked out and went on stage. That is deep end improv, Mike. Mm-hmm. That is... And how did you find it? Well, parts of it, as you say, terrifying but <laughs> glorious. But other parts of it, excruciatingly embarrassing. Although they weren't bothered at all. They, the rest of them were saying, it's fine, it's fine. I said, I was terrible. I was really terrible. We played a game, the game where you go out of the room and they give you a job. The audience give you a job. Right. And my job was the man who puts the piece of paper into Rizzler packets when there are only five Rizzlers left <laughs> that says there are only five Rizzlers left. Okay. And they all went, oh, that's a good job. Yes, Mike will get that. And, of course, you only really get that, A, if you've ever smoked roll-up cigarettes, which yeah. I haven't, and, B, if you smoke a lot of dope, which <laughs> I haven't. But they have. So they thought it was blindingly obvious. You know the piece of paper that I, I've never had any knowledge of this in my life. I don't yeah. know what you're talking about. And I stood there and they gave me clue after clue after clue. And in the end I said, I, I'm not, I'm not going to get this. Oh, I've never heard of that Rizzler thing either. I had no idea that was a thing. It's very <laughs> chivalrous, though, to give you a little warning, isn't it? Yeah. Do you know what it's like? It's like the extra little cap of ink at the end of the quaint cartridge. <laughs> it's just letting you know you're on yeah. your uppers now. They could put in an extra Rizzler where that card went. <laughs> of course they could. Then you'd have six. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Andy, okay, right. We're going to take the lovely halfway house pub. Mm. The haggis and the neeps and tatties are warming nicely. They are thermonuclear when they come out of the microwave. It's, it's scalding. <laughs> Fantastic. And a little glass of um, Talisker or something to wash it down. Gorgeous. Okay, that's into the time capsule. So we've got two more items left. Okay. Item number four, this is the other, the one I'm keeping, the one I'm fond of, mm-hmm. uh, is issue 932 of Private Eye magazine. Why? It's the first one I read. I was I was very young when I started reading Private Eye. I, mean, I, was, I was 10 years old when this came out. And it's a very famous edition of the magazine. It's the one um, It's the one that came out after Princess Diana had died. Right. So what's the cover? The cover is, it says, media to blame. And there's a picture of an enormous crowd outside Kensington Palace, as there was, of course. And there are three speech bubbles coming from the crowd. One of them says, the papers are a disgrace, aren't they? The person replying says, yes, I couldn't get hold of one anywhere. And the third one is saying, borrow mine, it's got a picture of the car. And (laughs) it was kind of, you know, it's making fun of the the complicity that so many people had in the the hounding of Princess Diana in the the weeks and months before her death. You know, the, the insane prurience of the red top press and the fact that people lapped it up. People were so keen to read about, you know, the continued adventures of Princess Diana. And so this was a a really controversial cover. It was uh, banned from lots of shops after the magazine was published. I think particularly W.H. Smith, uh, who probably had lots of form with. um, They get called W.H. Smug in the magazine, (laughs) even these days. Never forget a grudge. But it, it was 
it was such a, a kind of bracing shock, that copy of the magazine. Uh, looking mm. back on it now, I understand a lot more of it than I did when I was 10, obviously. But um, it pointed out so much of the hypocrisy in the, the media's coverage of Princess Diana. Yes. And um, there was an amazing hack watch, we, we call it in the magazine, which is where you, you know, you're covering one particular hack or one particular subject and how everyone has gone, uh, gone nuts over it. Linda Lee Potter, formerly of the Daily Mail, had, it, it showed you a, a Linda Lee Potter column from three weeks before Diana died, where she was saying, this lady's a bad mum. She's run off without her kids to be with, you know, some doughty fired guy. She's awful. <laughs> she's dreadful. And then Linda Lee Potter about, you know, 36 hours after Diana died, she was a saint. She loved her children. It was, a, you know, mm-hmm. it's extraordinary seeing this <laughs> amazing display. And it was, it was, I think, very courageous to publish all of this stuff at a time when there, there was such febrile emotion in the country. The papers were so affronted on our behalf, weren't they? Yeah. That this wonderful, wonderful woman had been treated so badly. And yet it was by them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... It's extraordinary looking back at it now. And I guess that was a that was a moment where I thought, God, who's writing this stuff? These people are, are being really rude about lots of people. Mm-hmm. And the, the coverage itself wasn't really anti-Diana at all. It was all about the press coverage. It was about the way the media had reacted. Yeah, the duplicity of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it was kind of thrillingly shocking and subversive to me at the age of 10. Did you develop then almost immediately a desire to work there? I think on some level, yeah. Um, but they uh, they wouldn't accept me, despite me writing every week. Uh, <laughs> they said, "No, we we really don't have any roles for ten year olds." Oh no! I wrote when I was a, when I was about sixteen or seventeen, and they said, "Yeah, we don't really need sixteen year olds either." I'm afraid. Maybe come back when you're in your second year of university. Uh, and then I wrote again in my second year of university, and I got a bit of work experience there, and have been there ever since. Really, um, twelve years I've been working there now. But uh, the memory of that edition is very strong. And so many complaints, hundreds and hundreds of complaints, people cancelling their subscriptions. And Private Eye is quite good at publishing very angry letters from people about itself. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) They quote the most rude stuff people say about them. It's, yeah. People wrote in saying things like, you were the creatures that crawl out from under large flat stones covered in green slime. We really hit a nerve. Um, God. They hit a nerve. Who was the editor for that magazine then? That was Ian Hislop. He's been editing it, um, gosh, about 35 years now. Has he really? Yeah. Doesn't time fly. Yeah, yeah. He started at the age of 26. I mean, remarkable. I think he had a a few lawsuits by that time and was, was not intimidated by the thought of putting something pretty punchy on the cover. No. Yeah. No, he's had some extraordinarily yeah. heavy lawsuits, hasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> and lost one or two as well, which is... Uh... Oh, yeah, heaps. Buckets. Mm. That was the big thing. Yeah. Private Eyes was a libel lawyer's benevolent fund for many years. <laughs> um, it's a bit less like that these days. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. That is an important issue. It's very important to remember that the press are not necessarily writing the truth. Yeah. And I, I also... I, I, I don't like... Um, anti-media stuff as a generality because I think media is one of the most important things. News organisations are trying to mediate between the people in charge and the people who are trying to find out what's going on, which is you and me. Mm. The fact is Private Eye spends all of its time criticising various media outlets for (laughs) the dreadful stuff they've done in lots of cases. But I don't think anyone at the Eye wants to see the media taken down, destroyed. You know, news of journalists losing jobs is always sad for us. And we, you know, we cover media bosses behaving badly to their underlings. 
you know, whatever latest press baron has popped up, whether it is, yes. um, you know, Murdoch or, or Lebedev or Maxwell back in the day or whoever it was. Um, but it, yeah, it's it's a funny thing to say that we, we quite want to have a lot of newspapers and and TV news and radio news. We want all of it to exist, but we're also going to be quite happy to point out the flaws and the mistakes and the, yes. as you say, the bungles and the hypocrisy. Yeah, and particularly that when it's sort of owner-led, that's when it's difficult. Yevgeny Lebedev, who, who owns The Independent and The Evening Standard, has a very good form on putting himself in the paper, writing about his pet issues. All the paper has a very good form on writing about the, the pub he owns mm. and <laughs> constantly recommending you pop down to the dog and duck in Bermondsey or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> that I do find very funny mm. because it's at the end of it, it, a lot of media barren stuff is one person's self-interest or their desire to yeah, yeah, be yeah, in the paper. Right. Human vanity is funny. But not even self-interest, just one person's opinion. Yeah. And that's not what you want to hear. No, absolutely. That's why you want a lot of media and you want a lot of outlets because you want to hear different voices then you can make your own mind up. That is very true. And you, yes, there are a lot of, um, there's no other word for it, billionaires who, <laughs> <laughs> um, who don't really cover their own stuff in their own papers. And, and that's pretty funny too. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Let's put that issue a private eye. What number was it again? I missed that. 932. 932. Anybody wants to go to their local library and look it up? 932. <laughs> I'm sure it's well worth a read. Okay, that goes into the time capsule. Excellent. So you've got one last item. This last item is related to something we touched on earlier, which is the uh, the show I do, Ostentatious. Mm-hmm. And it's a particular artefact which is associated with one of the shows we did. The object that I like to put in is one of the pods from the London Eye. <laughs> and... I don't know which pod it is because there are there are a couple of dozen. And they mix this them up, the they one. keep going round and round. It's impossible. <laughs> They're so unfair. It has to be this particular one. Okay. It has to be the one in which we performed, I'd say, the worst show of my life. <laughs> the show which aged all of us by several years. <laughs> I want this particular capsule removed from the London Eye and put in the ground forever. <laughs> Buried. Oh, God. Okay, come on, talk me through it. Gently, gently. Yeah. <laughs> As you know, everyone who does shows regularly will have a few shows like this in their memory. This was a speed dating event. And the conceit was kind of brilliant, actually. I think it was Valentine's Day. You go on the speed dating event, you know, lots of people turn up and they're paired off in sort of speed dating groups. And then you'll have some meeting and some drinks. And then everyone gets funneled onto the London Eye in which they have arranged something like 32 different activities. Um, You know, so there's something different happening in every capsule. You don't know which one you're going to get, but you're going to end up seeing something, you know, (laughs) amazing. Yes. And there were so many things on in the London Eye. I mean, there was comedy events happening in some, obviously. There There were music events. There was a petting zoo, which managed to get sort of rabbits and an alpaca and a goat onto the London Eye so people could (laughs) see them. And And every time the doors open, the animals try to run. (laughs) I can see it now. (laughs) Yeah, crazy and audacious idea. And we were approached to see if we wanted to do it, you know, do a 30-minute show. And it was only slightly spoiled by one thing, which is that none of the people who were our audience had any interest in seeing... (laughs) a Jane Austen-themed <laughs> improvised comedy show. Didn't know who she was. 
No, didn't know or care who we were either. And that's very reasonable. So these people wanted to see the view. They wanted to see the fabulous view of London at night. The city was lit up like gold. The skies were clear. You could see for miles. And blocking their view (laughs) of one of the great cities of the world were these chumps in early 19th century costumes trying to do a little funny play. It was a staggeringly long half an hour. I can imagine. <laughs> and we, we got off, they got off first and then we got off and we just thought, let's never ever speak of this again. And I'm, I'm breaking the code now to say. <laughs> so that's the last item. My word, that needs to be buried. You know the feeling, don't you? I have the cold sweat running down my back thinking about it. And did you not just think to yourself, after about 10 minutes of this, these people don't want this, but let's just look at the view with them. I don't think the thought even occurred to us. It didn't. I mean, that would have been the, you're right, that would have been the, a nice thing to do, to say, well, we've had a try at this, but, you know, you guys want to see the view and, and chat, and um, we weren't. We weren't being paid for it, so we weren't worried about losing our, no. our salary. No, so, my God, how dedicated. So, but we felt kind of trapped. Well, we were doing it, for, you know, we were doing it for PR. We thought this will get us, this will mm. get us noticed. These people are going to talk of nothing else. I, I'm, I know, I know. <laughs> um, so how many people were in the pod then? There were you, Lot. How many is that? Yeah, there were about five of us, I'd say. Five of you, so you can only get about another ten people in, maybe? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's worse. It's worse when it's a small audience giving you all their contempt. Yes. Weirdly, larger audience does mean more contempt, but <laughs> smaller audience, you're really looking in their eyes, and you know they're not into it. And also, had they been speed dating? Yeah. So they were really interested in in getting off with someone. E- each other, absolutely. <laughs> they were. Yeah. Just the more I describe it, the more awful it is. Oh, it's horrible. I think it sounds. I know. I know. <laughs> and yet, it's one of kind of my treasured memories from the last ten years of doing ostentatious. Was this? You remember the really good shows and the really bad ones. Mm. And, um, oh, what fun. We were kind of trapped in the moment. We couldn't step off the treadmill. No. That's why we didn't stop doing it. We couldn't see a way to break the fourth wall and say, <laughs> well, never mind that. Let's just have a nice time. My name's Andy, by the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh. oh, so simple. But there you are. You went through it bravely. <laughs> so congratulations. But I will take that memory for you and that moment. And in fact, I'll take the oh. whole pod. The next time you go across Charing Cross Bridge, you'll look to the right and you'll think, good Lord, there's a pod missing. <laughs> well done, Mike, you'll say. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. Then thank you for being on my time capsule. It's been lovely to talk to you. Brilliant. Oh, Mike, that was so much fun. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Michael Fenton Stevens, and my guest, Andrew Hunter Murray. Six syllables each. Impressive. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe to it for all episodes on Acast, CastBox, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You just search My Time Capsule. This has been a cast-off production, produced by John Fenton Stevens. The music is by Pass the Peas Music. Join me for another episode of My Time Capsule next week, where I ask the gardener, Monty Don, what herb he would put in a time capsule. Yeah, that joke works better when it's written down. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.